From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, when someone who was sexually abused as a child decides to press charges as an adult. I've always had this feeling as if someone didn't stick up for me, and I felt like perhaps it was time that I was that person for myself. Ben Roy, the Denver comedian, first came on our show imploring parents to listen to their children, even if they bring up molestation obliquely as a joke like Ben did when he was little. Well, since that first conversation, he was contacted by the authorities, who interviewed him about the alleged assault at a Catholic summer camp. What I did not count on with that interview was the amount of emotion that poured out of me. I thought I would be fine. Does he think pursuing a criminal case has been worth it? Plus, an update on reparations from the Catholic Church in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What's it like to come forward as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse? To recount what you can remember of the traumatic experience to investigators? We'll get one man's perspective today, a man who shared his story with us in 2018, then was contacted by law enforcement. Denver comedian Ben Roy says he was abused by a counselor at a Catholic summer camp when he was a kid. This was 1986 in New Hampshire, Camp Fatima. He remembers cracking a joke about it with his parents and then quickly walking it back, so they were never sure how to proceed. When we first brought you Ben's story in 2018, he'd just tweeted that parents should believe children when they speak up. So he and his father, Bob, came onto the show. Today, we have an important update, but first a short excerpt of that initial conversation. We had sent them to camp really because we wanted them to have a good experience of getting out of the city during the summer and getting to be with other kids their age and and play sports and all of that. And... When we selected a church-related camp, we felt, well, here's an institution we should be able to trust with the care of our children. Certainly, if I were making the same decision today, it would be a lot different. Ben Roy, I, I note that you are tearing up. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I know that, but I don't know that I've ever really heard that from my father's mouth. Uh, it certainly means a lot. What means a lot in particular? Hearing that and hearing... You know, someone contextualized why, you know, they made the decisions uh, that they did. You know how much guts this takes for Amanda to sit. You know, I I can't uh, express how much this means. Again, Denver comedian Ben Roy and his father, Bob. After that aired, about a year and a half ago, authorities contacted Ben. And a lot has transpired since, including a criminal case. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thank you. When we first spoke in 2018, you said you had consulted with a lawyer, but you were advised that the statute of limitations had passed for civil action mm-hmm. and that criminal would be just a long road. What changed your mind? After our, our first interview, I was contacted by somebody from the uh, attorney general's office in New Hampshire, and they had been contacted by the archdiocese because they have to notify them when there's an allegation against them. They had heard about the story. And he told me there was still time to do this if I wanted to and to pursue it. Okay, so you knew that the window still was open. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you necessarily want to move forward with it. What was your thinking? I think after talking to my wife and to a therapist and just looking at where we're at in the world right now and 
uh, this conversation is everywhere that I, I think I felt like it was time to stand up for myself that as we had talked about with my father on the initial interview, you know, they, for reasons, as we had discussed, not done anything about it. And I've felt that I've always had this feeling as if someone didn't stick up for me. And I felt like perhaps it was time that I was that person for myself. There was a bit of a sense that your family might have swept it under the rug or dismissed your initial protests about what happened to you. Exactly. It sounds like the attorney general's office in New Hampshire, they were alerted to this because Camp Fatima caught word that you'd come forward. And I have a a letter from Camp Fatima sent to their community. Mm Mm-hmm writing to inform you about a distressing out-of-state news report. Colorado Public Radio aired an interview with Mr. Benjamin Roy, who reported that he'd been sexually abused by a counselor in the summer of 1986. And the letter goes on to say the best way to honor Mr. Roy's decision to step forward is to encourage any survivor of abuse to bring any allegation, no matter how old, to the attention of the authorities so that it may be investigated. Does that feel like you made a difference? No, not at all. And I took issue with that letter. The fact that they included my name in a letter out to all their parents and camp counselors, this one out to everybody. Another shining example of the fact that the Catholic Church believes that they are capable of handling these types of things by themselves. What organization includes in their letter to parents, to camp counselors, to people who work for the camp, the victim, the name of the victim in it. No one does that. Now, they might have said, gosh, he went on Colorado Public Radio. He's There's nothing here to mask. Right. Of course, it is Colorado Public Radio, and this is all the way in New Hampshire. What they inadvertently opened up was a floodgate of counselors, of campers messaging me, of parents messaging me on Twitter. Um, Saying what? Various things, people asking me to give the name of the person because uh, and feeling that I should, which I did not and I would not because I don't want to harm the investigation. So this becomes heaped on you exactly. as a result, you're saying. And also I received uh, messages from kids that attended the camp asking me to not pursue any charges against the camp because it's done wonderful things for them. I reported all of these, of course, to the authorities. You think the camp just acted completely thoughtlessly in that regard? Totally. I mean, I keep my name out of your mouth. You know, I mean, at that point, you could say any number of things. You could keep it anonymous at that point. Whether or not I was on record with my own name, that's my right, hmm. as far as I'm concerned. If I wanted to go to New Hampshire and do this, or I wanted to go to the media in New Hampshire, uh, certainly I would have. Um, after the attorney general in New Hampshire contacted you, you flew out there. Mm-hmm. What what do those early steps look like for survivors? Help us understand that. The investigator for the attorney general put me in touch with Gilmington PD. Uh, they reached out to me and set up a time for me to come in and, and give a statement of what had happened. I So they asked you to recount the events. Exactly. They had me meet at a child advocacy center, which apparently is common. If the incident occurred when you were a child, they'll have you uh, do your interview at a child advocacy center. So I don't know what that is, a child advocacy center. It's, a, it's basically a, a center that is devoted solely for children who have experienced abuse mm. or some sort of assault. 
they are rooms that are designed for children. So there's cameras in the room, but the person interviewing them is not a police officer. It's a therapist. Um, so I was interviewed by a therapist. Um, which Did that was, feel like an affirming environment? Was it strange to be sort of... Truthful, truthfully, the environment I found relaxing. I thought the manner in which the authorities and the state of New Hampshire handled it was very kind and... They were sensitive. A lot of your memories of the incident were still foggy when you and I talked in mm-hmm. 2018. As you were retelling the story in that setting, did more come up? No. I mean, I, you know, that that's the hardest problem with being the victim of abuse as a child. Uh, your anger is often pointed at yourself because of what you can't remember. I remember the events very vividly. They're seared in my brain. As far as names that that's difficult. There are parts of it that end in a blackness. You, there's no, there's no way it just cuts off, and there's no no amount of saying it over and over again is going to bring some memory back. What a I, lot of it, it seems like, is sense memory. Mm-hmm. Like you probably remember what how how, how things felt, mm-hmm. or like maybe some images. Yeah, but, I but remember the, the cabin. I remember as I described it to the person that I was communicating with. Yeah, there was a point at which you actually reached out to the person who you believe abused you. Right. I picked him out of a photo with no name from a yearbook, and he confirmed he was my counselor at that time. So I obviously remembered him. And he confirmed my memories on where bunks were, where his bunk was, uh, where everybody slept and where we slept in relation to it. What I did not count on with that interview was the amount of emotion that poured out of me. I thought I would be fine In fact, I didn't bring anybody with me. My mom wanted to come along as emotional support. And and I was like, no, 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 I got this. I've told the story a number of times. So you're sitting in the Child Advocacy Center and what, the waterworks start coming? As soon as I started talking about it, yeah. I mean, I, I even now, everything tenses up. It gets into the pit of your stomach and I, like, tears well up in my eyes. I don't know why. It just is an emotion that comes out. It's, it's anger. It's uh, fear. I hadn't been that afraid in a long time. And I'll say this, like I'm a 40 year old man and I take jujitsu. I'm not, I'm fairly confident in my ability to handle myself and, and I feel relatively tough. And that reduced me to a child. What do you think you were afraid of? It's interesting that the response was, some of it was fear. I don't know. I mean, part of it is I'm afraid, again, they're not going to believe me. I was afraid that no one else would come forward. I was afraid people would think that I'm doing this for attention. It's a huge step. when you, Anytime you see somebody with a badge and with guns and there's people from the attorney general's office, they're watching in another room on you know, closed circuit TV, they were watching and... You felt that? Yeah, I mean, I knew they were there. They told me they were there. And I remember that you had some frustration about even your own family listening to you and believing you and Mm -hmm. hearing you. Yeah. So that's all wrapped up in this too. Yeah, I think when I was talking to my therapist about it, we were talking uh, at great length about people who have survived sexual assault or abuse or experienced something of that nature when they were younger. You can have somebody who experienced really horrific uh, systemic 
long-term abuse who may handle it relatively well and lives a relatively normal life. And then you may have somebody who has one instance, one thing, and it shapes them for the rest of their life and they struggle on and off to varying degrees. And, you know, what we were talking about and what she had said was there's no common denominator other than the fact of how it was responded to, how the allegation was handed. Oh, interesting. How how influential the response is to the effect it has on the rest of your life. Exactly. Okay. And I think that if you validate what your kid is feeling, um, you take away the need to constantly be heard. And that's something that no one can listen to me enough. If I'm upset, there's no amount of listening that mm. fixes it. It's just this hole that you can keep dumping your affirmations that I'm hearing you in. And that's, I've heard that from other people who experienced where they came forward and they told somebody, but their experience wasn't validated. They are constantly needing affirmation from other people. In our 2018 interview, you believed that the man who abused you was still involved with the camp, but uh, officials stated in their letter to the community that after reviewing their records, they can say with certainty that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you buy that? I think they're aware now who this particular person is, and I think that that's correct. Do you know if he's cooperating with the investigation? He is not. This particular person did agree to an interview and backed out of the first one. And then uh, when they reached out again to reschedule it, they received a letter from a lawyer and he's not agreed to cooperate. Okay. He's lawyered up, as they say. And that doesn't mean the case goes nowhere, but it, it becomes a much more difficult one to pursue. Exactly. Because this particular person, whether or not this is the perpetrator of it, placed himself in the cabin to me through conversations that I had turned over to them. Does this feel stalled to you right now? Yes. And the people that I was dealing with were extremely kind and uh, heartfelt and listened to me and I believe took my concerns and my fears seriously. And I think they're doing their due diligence. I think this is another story once again of time being the Catholic Church's best friend. Hmm. They are fully aware that the longer they draw this out on a lot of these situations, the harder and harder it gets for anybody to be able to receive absolution. Has the camp reached out to you directly? No, the camp has not reached out to me directly. I'm sure they were advised not to, and I'm glad they did not. I, I appreciate that they haven't. My biggest reason for coming forward with this initially and coming to you all here at CPR was that I want people to know that this didn't stop in the 70s at Camp Fatima. It continued into the 80s because they had created an atmosphere where this happened and somehow this camp is still allowed to operate. Could you imagine a daycare center continuing to operate under the same ownership? This is just unbelievable. And, uh, I hope it inspires others to come forward as well. And do you think more people coming forward, more people doing what you're doing, is what will help advance your case? 100%. I mean, the biggest roadblock that they've run into at this point is the fact that a lot of the kids that attended that camp were from out of state or out of the country uh, because Canada is so close. 
so they're just having trouble tracking them down with the lack of of records. And so does the stalling of the case remind you of not being heard or listened to? I wonder if that just adds fuel to that fire. Yeah. I mean, I think it does for any, I mean, I'm I'd be human, inhuman, I think, to not feel that. I'm trying to remind myself that I pursued this knowing full well that this was a very uphill battle and telling myself that regardless of the outcome, at least I stood up for myself. Okay, so is that the lingering feeling? At least you stood up for yourself, yeah. no matter the end. Yeah, and I would tell anybody out there that if even if it's been a long time, to do it for yourself, to be the arms that you wrapped around yourself. You know what I mean? To stand up and to put yourself first. Um, when somebody may not have in the past, hmm. you can be that for yourself. It's interesting. My concern was going to be that the conversation we had might dissuade people from coming forward because it doesn't have the riding off in the sunset ending, mm-hmm. at least yet. But that's not what I'm hearing from you. No. I think my choice out of this is that I can choose the narrative that I want out of this. And hopefully the end of the narrative is that when other people, my parents who I've worked through with that, um, whether or not when I reported it in high school, whether the fault came on my drug counselor who I reported it to, or it was the state of New Hampshire, because he said that he reported it to the state of New Hampshire and they did nothing, or whether it was the Catholic Church when that was reported that did nothing. All of these places where it broke down, I could be that for me. Ben, thank you. Thank you. Ben Roy of Denver. We reached out to Camp Fatima to ask why they used his name in a letter to the camp community. They declined to comment, citing pending litigation. Okay, for some Colorado perspective on the issue of Catholic sexual abuse, let's turn to CPR public affairs reporter Andy Kenny. He's been listening in. Hi, Andy. Hello. I want to say that you've been covering clergy abuse in the Catholic Church here in Colorado for some time now, especially as reparations are being paid to survivors now. What's the latest on those? Well, that program is in full swing now. Colorado and the archdiocese here and the diocese agreed to pay out financial settlements to certain abuse victims. Right, this money is coming from the church. The claims were due by January 31st, and what we found was that 87 people submitted claims. They've so far processed about a quarter of them, but they're paying out a substantial amount. From the nine payouts that have happened so far, uh, about a million dollars in all were paid. Nine adding up to a million. And the church and those who conducted the inquiry of the church agreed that there would be no caps here. I mean, it could be as much as is ruled. That's right. It's hard to extrapolate how much they'll pay out in the end. Maybe they settled the easier ones first. But in other states, it has added up to tens of millions of dollars. When you hear an experience like Ben Roy's, does it remind you of your own reporting? Yeah, it reminds me quite a bit of the stories that we've heard from other survivors of abuse. As with Ben, it starts with a trusted source. He went to that camp because his father, in that very emotional introduction, believed it would be the right place to protect him, where he would never be affected by something like this. And that's exactly the kind of story we've heard, not just from other survivors, but from their family members as well. That guilt, that questioning from the family of, should I have seen? Should I have noticed? We heard that exact same story from from quite a few people. What about this idea that pursuing 
legal action can be healing. Have you heard mixed opinions on that or what? Yeah, we did a story on a gentleman named Shug Shippers who did not come forward with his allegations of abuse for the better part of, gosh, 40 or more years. And when we interviewed him, he was at a, a stage where he wanted to come forward but had hardly told anyone. And he was really quite ambivalent about it. And you can hear it in our story where he just sounds sapped of energy and he's still not sure. And after the story ran, he you know, would kind of text me in a panic sometimes like, oh, is this going out more places? Kind of dreading his story coming out more. But I just checked in with him just now and he responded with you know lots of exclamation points saying, oh, I'm talking to this lawyer now. I talked to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. And you could tell that it's given him something to focus on, and he, he's become more enthusiastic about it. So I think that the same thing kind of happened with Ben, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think it's a similar trajectory. What are the differences here in terms of the statute of limitations? Because for Ben Roy, he had a little bit more time on the criminal. What's the deal in Colorado? And, and I know that a lot of the abuse survivors here, the abuse happened elsewhere. So this is not a monolithic conversation. So this is a, a good example of how complicated the laws can be. If you were abused today as a child, you would be able to pursue criminal charges for the rest of your life. There would be no limit. Mm. But the state legislature only put that in place in the 1990s. And so for a lot of people who have cases dating especially to the 70s when so much of this happened, you are not able to pursue those criminal charges. You just don't have that option here right now. What about civil? Civil is even tighter right now. Um, in Colorado, it's just a matter of years after you turn 18 that you're able to pursue a lawsuit claiming damages either from the person or from the organization. But what I hear from Democrats in the legislature is that they will pursue reform or changes for statute of limitations. I'm not sure on civil or criminal, but they will look to extend that period where you can seek remuneration and compensation for what happened to you as a kid. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Andy Kenny, and he'll be back with us later in the show as state lawmakers consider scrapping the death penalty. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I believe in comeback stories and second chances, and I believe in recovery. I'm Vic Vela, weekend host here on CPR News, and now I'm hosting a new podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering cocaine addict myself, I've been talking to people who've made their own comebacks. I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. A counselor in therapy has changed my life for the better. The first episode comes out February 21st. Listen to the trailer and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org. Abel Antonio Chavez grew up scavenging alley trash, which he and his undocumented parents would fix up and sell at flea markets. Today, Chavez is a dean at Western Colorado in Gunnison. He also helps mountain towns fight climate change. Oh, and he's the winner of Mexico's highest civilian honor. And Abel, welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on with you. I'd like to start with your dad and those scavenging trips. Um, what did that teach you and how did he help influence your path? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that taught me uh, a lot of tinkering, uh, without a doubt, and also uh, to be frugal and plentiful with, uh, with the little that we had. It actually makes me think of your work with climate change, which we'll talk about in a bit, but this idea of 
kind of sustainability, reusing, reducing, and recycling, you know, sometimes that's not a luxury. Sometimes life makes us do that. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that's that, uh, without a doubt absolutely true. And, um, you know, my, my family has been uh, 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 from modest means, uh, without a doubt, and uh, I think it was just the reality of our situation and and uh, and so that's that's what we needed to do, right? We we needed to, to scrap, scratch and claw, and um, and and so make uh, make do with what we had, and and so that was uh, that's what we had before us. And um, you know, I definitely appreciated the, uh, the 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 tinkering aspect, and the uh, and the reduce, the reuse, and recycle um, that uh, that we were forced to do. Was there something in your upbringing in Denver Swansea neighborhood? that sparked your desire to fix entire communities? Again, work we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, without a doubt, Ryan. So uh, about a half a block away from, from my home in Swansea, uh, which uh, my, my, my mom still owns, is Interstate 70. About a couple blocks away from that same home is, uh, is, a, is a dog manufacturing community. Uh, 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 a plant which is still in place. A dog food and a dog food. Yes, a dog food manufacturing company. And 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 just realizing, uh, you know, from the modest means, we had no air conditioning in our home, so we needed to crack those windows uh, to to ventilate during any hot summer month in in Denver. And so I came to wonder. You know what that air that we were breathing, uh, because we had no air conditioning, uh, caused, um, or what the effects were of of that of that air. But then, furthermore, you know, fast forward a number of years, um, you know, I found out that the EPA had 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 paid uh, a number of, of of homes, my friends and their families, a couple thousand dollars uh, for the bulldozers that were turning up uh, the, the soil. That was contaminated by uh, by a, a a smelter plant on the other side of uh, of, of Swansea, um, and so all of that served for a lot of sources of inspiration uh, to do the work that I do now, and and give communities and their people's voice. Uh, concerns, of course, still linger in those neighborhoods along I seventy. Um, there is now a massive project to kind of remake the highway there that's been uh, awfully controversial, especially with folks in Denver's Elyria Swansea neighborhood. Um, I, I do understand that before your family lived in, in a home in that area, I think, I think your parents, do I have it right, were living in a car? Uh, yeah, so, so my dad, when he arrived uh, to the United States from Ciudad Juarez, uh, Mexico, uh, back in the mid-70s, uh, late 70s, he, uh, he was... That that was uh, that was his roof, a a car, and and uh, you know he would he would uh, uh, walk in, uh, in in extreme weather to work, um, which was a meatpacking company, um, right there off of uh, off of York Street. Um, again, just to just to make make ends meet and to pursue his version and my family's version of the American dream, which you've continued to do. My guest is. Abel Chavez, you were accepted, Abel, to the Colorado School of Mines out of high school, but I understand that you couldn't afford the tuition. Uh, how did how did you go from what I imagine was that disappointment to earning a doctorate? 
You know, absolutely. Uh, never giving up and, and always uh, relying on, on, on my tremendous mentors and, and great folks uh, who have always surrounded me. And I am very proud to say that uh, because that part of my dream didn't uh, shake out the way that I wanted, I, I ended up uh, starting my, my academic trajectory at the Front Range Community College and then transferred over to CU Denver and completed my mechanical engineering uh, degree undergrad. Uh, later, uh, uh, did an MBA at the University of Houston and returned to my great state of Colorado and, and, and also completed a uh, doctorate in civil and environmental engineering back at CU Denver. Um, and I am uh, uh, tr- uh, truly honored to serve uh, our students now at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. Uh, as a mentor, you say that they were so important to your upbringing, your coming along. Uh, Abel Chavez joins us. He is a dean at Western Colorado in Gunnison. And uh, we're going to talk now about some of his work uh, to help mountain towns fight climate change. I want to say that, that you came to Gunnison six years ago from Potsdam, Germany, where you were leading some groundbreaking global research on sustainability. Um I guess first off, what what brought you to a small rural school like Western Colorado? Yeah, no, absolutely. The the opportunity uh, and the challenge to translate the work that I that that I had been doing, that I was doing in mega cities across the world, uh, from Mexico City to Delhi, India, to Mumbai, India, uh, to New York City. The list goes on, and and. And, and translate those frameworks, those methodologies for measuring the energy flows, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with cities to smaller communities. Um, as we know, um, they're, they're, these communities, the, the, the rural communities in the United States, yeah. um, are, are, are connected to urban areas across the United States and, and, and really across the world, and, and, and being able to, to, to affect positive change in our uh, infrastructurally challenged rural communities was a tremendous opportunity for me. So help me understand that. I I just want to say that um, your own research has to do with assessing what you call metabolic flows of communities. And that sounds, you know, maybe a little jargony, but it's fascinating. It is the, the flow of our daily lives of goods and of effluent and all of those sorts of things. G- give me an example of how your work on that in mega cities uh, might translate into more sustainability and fighting climate change in, you know, I don't know, a town like Gunnison. No, absolutely. So, so simply understanding um, the 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 meta the, the 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 metabolic flows, right, or or the or the biology of our communities is is kind of that metaphor that I apply uh, to my research uh, work, which is you know I I use the natural world as an inspiration uh, to better understand our built environment. I've heard so, this called biomimicry, the idea that we could glean a lot from nature by kind of understanding ourselves through its lenses. Yeah, so absolutely biomimicry is uh is 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 parallel to my home discipline which is industrial ecology and and as any biological system, right? As we know, uh you know, we we eat a banana in the morning, we eat an apple. Uh so that's the intake and and uh, we drink some water and we also realize and we know that there is outflows from our from our body and similar to any any city, any community, right? There there are inputs into into that system, 
uh, money flows, there are energy flows, there are food flows, and then there are also outputs. Uh, it might be solid waste. It might be uh, money as well, right, uh, in, in, in terms of trade out to other communities. And so that's really the way that, uh, that, that I very uh, uh, apply the same sense of curiosity to our built environments and our communities. And is it that there is potentially a lot of waste in those streams that could otherwise be harnessed? I mean, you know, waste for sustainability gurus is often seen as just like energy out that may be, re- you know, harnessed, reused. Absolutely. So I believe there are uh, countless opportunities within our communities to harness that waste. Uh, and, and, and there are quite a bit of scholars that, uh, that are doing that, sorts of, uh, that, that sort of work. And that's under the umbrella of, uh, of, of, of the circular economy. So instead of making uh, our streams linear, Right, we are uh, thinking a lot about how to make these things circular. So, reinjecting the wastes back into the economy as useful or usable products. And you've done this in the past, working with companies like Dow Chemical, Anheuser Busch, Ball Corporation. Do you sense that corporate America is more interested in this kind of conversation than it has been in the past? Without a doubt, uh, yes. I just gave a lecture to some of our folks here at the Masters in Environmental Management uh, at Western, uh, which is one of seven graduate programs at Western. Um, and uh, this was just two days ago. And that's what we spoke about, how, how for and nonprofits have, have embraced the challenges of sustainability. Uh, yes, because we as consumers might be demanding these sorts of, 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 of actions. But, you know, at the end of the day, it just makes sense. Uh, and oftentimes it just makes financial sense to, uh, to be more efficient with our resources. Abel Chavez, you have received numerous awards over the years, but you recently were honored with one that is especially meaningful. I think it's called the Oatley Award, the highest civil honor given out by the Mexican government. Uh, tell me why, before we go, that was so meaningful to you. Uh, for so many reasons, Ryan, uh, because it was uh, my parents who, who came from very modest means to this country. Uh, they were undocumented when they arrived in the United States, and thanks to the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, uh, they were able to become citizens and, and, and be active in our economy and in our uh, democracy and, and, and those tools, those resources that they instilled in myself and, and my sisters, um, I am simply just paying it forward and, and, and doing what I can for all of our communities, whether they're folks from, from rural America or uh, from abroad um, or uh, from any city uh, in the U.S. Um, it just means so much to me to be able to give back to our youth um, and now uh, another uh, another uh, uh, responsibility of mine uh, at Western is the vice president of student success. Student success and, and innovation is your title there. I'll, I'll have to end it there, but I'm so glad we got that title in because you are in many ways trying to help students succeed in the way that you had mentors help you back in the day. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the time. 
Abel Chavez, again Vice President of Student Success and Innovation and Dean of Graduate Studies at Western Colorado University. He joined us by phone from the campus in Gunnison. A measure to repeal the state's death penalty is scheduled to get its first hearing in the Colorado House Tuesday. Only a few weeks ago, the state Senate passed the bill with the support of almost all the Democrats and even a few Republicans. This is the sixth time in just over a decade that lawmakers have tried to end capital punishment here. How has the reception to the bill this year compared to previous ones? The hosts of CPR's political podcast, Purplish, Benta Berkland and Andy Kenny sat down with the Denver Post's Alex Burness. Entering last year's legislative session, uh, where Democrats had seized control of the entirety of state government, in, in the words of one state senator, it was full speed ahead on death penalty repeal. This was one of those things that was like, Democrats are in control now, this is just going to happen. And it all fell apart, and it fell apart pretty dramatically and painfully. And um, the reason why, in short, is that there's a state senator, a Democratic state senator named Rhonda Fields. In 2005, her son and his fiance were murdered by two men who uh, now sit on Colorado's death row. They're two of the three men on Colorado's death row. Last year, as they were rolling out this bill, she said that she was pretty offended by uh, how the sponsors of the bill had rolled this bill out, that they were moving too quickly. I mean, if you remember, the bill was introduced and the hearing was literally the next day. Mm -hmm. And she called that a gut punch. And so there were a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, um, who just felt uneasy passing the death penalty repeal, knowing that something that was already inherently painful for for their colleague was going to be extra rough on her just because of how this process had gone. And so there were people who just could not get over this. There there were four Democrats last year who were wavering as a result of this process stuff. There were a few Republicans who might have come on board or were thinking about it who just didn't want to touch it. And so Julie Gonzalez, uh, the state senator, one of these sponsors last year, tearfully pulls it off the floor last year. I ask that this bill be laid over because I believe wholeheartedly that the way in which we treat each other through this process is as important as the policy itself. So when this bill comes back next session, there will be nothing left to hide behind except this abhorrent, terrible practice. And she brings it back this year and says, this time the process is going to be as respectful and deliberate um, as possible. And we're, we are going to pass this measure, but um, we really want to bring Rhonda Fields along as, as carefully as we can. This has been interesting to watch for a first timer in the legislature like me as well, because it shows how much of that building is dependent on relationships between these people who are there for, you know, often years and years. Yeah. And I think, you know, advocates for repealing the death penalty outside of the building, some of the religious groups, They really thought last year was going to be the time. They were extremely disappointed and frustrated that they felt there were process problems, and they did feel bad for Rhonda Fields. It's a personal issue, and it touches on so many things, but how many people have a direct connection to the death penalty? When you really 
look at the whole state, who's been through that experience. Very, very few people. And we can't underestimate what that means to have one of them sitting in the state Senate and having a vote on this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's enormous. Uh, two thirds of death row is directly connected to a state senator. I mean, that, that's as personal as it gets. But as it turns out, uh, just in reporting on uh, on the death penalty repeal in Colorado, I've ended up talking to a lot of people who've had family members murdered and where at some point uh, the death penalty was either being considered in, in the court cases uh, relating to their family members or it was just something that had popped into their head and they were forced to wrestle with, well, do I support this? Would I even want this theoretically? So um, even though there's only three people on death row, it turns out that it's something that uh, more than a few people have given some thought to. And speaking of that, in the House, a Democratic State Representative Tom Sullivan, whose son was murdered in the Aurora Theater shooting, has been through the death penalty process. James Holmes ultimately didn't receive the death penalty, but Sullivan is very supportive of giving parents that that choice. And Andy, you know, we've been talking a lot about Democrats here, but we've got some splits in the Republican Party over this. So I got curious, is there more of a national movement around Republicans interested in criminal justice reform? I found a group called Right on Crime and spoke with its leader, Derek Cohen. And what he said was that, you know, Republicans very much led the way from the 60s through the 90s in the creation of this tough on crime mentality. And what he said was that some Republicans now see it as, well, their responsibility to start winding that back. And he said there's a couple reasons they're interested in doing that. You've got the religious angle where, you know, especially for Catholic Republicans, when it comes to something like the death penalty, they uh, they see it as taking a life. And so for the same reason that they might oppose abortion, they have questions now about the death penalty. You also have a kind of a libertarian approach to it where if you don't believe that the government should be able to take away your rights, then maybe they shouldn't be able to take away your life. And in general, like there is room for this belief among Republicans that the criminal justice state has gotten really quite large and it's not really working. And so if you look at it just like you would look at any other part of government as a conservative, maybe it's something that you want to wind back. I wonder how much of the debate has centered on the criminal justice reform angle, saving money versus the moral and ethical and religious questions. What have you all made of the arguments being posed? Mm -hmm. I think that on death penalty... There's some overlap with what Andy's talking about, about the uh, where, where left and right can come together in this Venn diagram of criminal justice priorities. I also think death penalty kind of stands alone. It's so binary. It's I don't mean to say it's simple. It's not a simple issue, but I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, the, the debate is interesting. It's useful, but they know where they stand. You were seeing Rhonda Fields and others in these sort of uh, recognizing that they didn't have the votes to actually reject this bill. So for the bill sponsors in Centennial and the bill sponsor in Denver, will you please help the people of Colorado and the people in this chamber understand your motivation and your rationale for abolishing the death penalty when the people of Colorado don't want it? You were saying Rhonda Fields and all these people who recognized that they did not have the votes to reject the bill, bringing forward a slew of amendments that took hours to go over. And one of the amendments that, that we saw people bring, uh, Bob Gardner, a Republican who brought it in committee, who brought it on the Senate floor this week, said, well, let's put this to the voters. Let's put the repeal question to the voters. Uh, proponents of the repeal say, look, we were elected here to do the people's work. We have conviction. Our, we know what our constituents feel on this. We need to move it uh, forward on this. And, uh, you know, this is not the last that 
that I think we're going to see of that proposal to put it on the ballot. I'm sure it'll come up in the House uh, next week or, or whenever it arrives there. And the Senate was really the the closest vote, the narrowest margin, even though we've shown this is a bipartisan issue, more Democrats support repealing it than Republicans. So in the House, with that wider majority, they can lose some some Democrats and still get this measure through. Benta Berkland and Andy Kenny, hosts of CPR's Politics Podcast, speaking with Alex Burness of the Denver Post about a bill to repeal the death penalty in Colorado. The House Judiciary Committee is poised to take up the bill Tuesday. You can subscribe to CPR's Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. Student filmmaker Miles Goldstein, who attends the University of Denver, decided to explore the Jewish community around him. The result is a short film called Kehila. What I was looking for in the film is to better understand where I did come from and where I belong in, in the maze of it all. Goldstein, who's half Jewish, didn't feel connected to the faith. I have Jewish roots, and I can't even answer the simple question of, what does a rabbi do? I need to investigate this, and I need to learn more about because this is part of my culture. So the young filmmaker met with leaders of several local congregations and then filmed the whole thing. I spend most of my time finding people who question their own self-worth. And it's everything I can do not to jump across the table and shake them by the lapels and say, you are amazing. You do reflect God's image. There is nobody in the world more important than you. We are all our own facilitators of prayer. There's a direct connection that we seek to the divine, to nature, to one another. In Jewish tradition, we don't need or require a mediator. Any Jewish adult can lead a service. Worship for us is organized events that hopefully bring people towards prayer. And I can create a worship experience. I can do that. I can create an atmosphere, but I can't force someone to pray. Most importantly, and the overarching necessity of being a rabbi is that he has to care. We have to both be here and be aware of what we're bringing to the table. And if we can do that, then, you know, everybody can do their job from their own perspective and hear the other. And that's really important. Rabbis Yossi Sarabransky of Chabad South Denver, Benjamin Arnold of Beth Evergreen, Cantor Elizabeth Sachs of Temple Emanuel, Rabbi Tzvi Steinberg of Zera Abraham, and Rabbi Emily Hyatt of Temple Emanuel. They all made Goldstein wonder. Am I so different than I initially thought? And he realized the importance of community, not just for him, but for everyone. What I'm searching for is really no different than, you know, what a Muslim is searching for, what a Hasidic Jew is searching for, is just a, a way to belong in the world. Goldstein's short film is Kehila, which is Hebrew for community, and it premieres this weekend at the Denver Jewish Film Festival, which runs through February 19th at the JCC Mizell Arts and Culture Center. Finally today, new music from alternative folk band Whippoorwill. The Fort Collins Trio released their first full-length album in November, The Nature of Storms. They joined us in the CPR Performance Studio back in 2017 and spoke about one of the many storms that inspired the album title. In this case, a tornado they encountered while driving through Oklahoma. You know, we were completely oblivious just driving through in our new old minivan 
and the transmission at the point at which we thought we were going to be destroyed by the tornado, the transmission in the van started to fail. I thought that the two girls had disappeared into the sky. I was driving our friend Anna's van in front of them, and I saw their headlights behind us, and then all of a sudden they were gone. And that's when the transmission went out, and I thought they were up with Dorothy somewhere. (laughs) That is Whippoorwill drummer Tobias Bank and vocalist Alicia Kraft. Fortunately, they all survived, and now songs like I Got Drunk are out in the world for all to enjoy. I got drunk in the morning time Just roaming around Trying to find plans that we made In the bed that we laid Oh, I don't think I can do this for another day I Got Drunk from Fort Collins band Whippoorwill on their debut full-length album. We're grateful you spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.